0: Steve Sammartino is a speaker, an author of books like The Lesson School Forgot, Great Fragmentation, Think Like a Startup, he's a prolific blogger, he's a host of TV shows, and so much more. In this conversation, we talk about basically everything to do with the intersection of anthropology, technology, and economics. We talk about Tesla, Bitcoin, ChatGPT the singularity, and so many other things about the future, about the past, and about human nature. This conversation you can probably see in your podcast player is about two hours, so you might need to break it up over a few trips or an extra long gym session. But instead of breaking this up, I think this is a great podcast that you can come back to a few times. Maybe if you miss something, you can go back uh, and start again, or maybe you're listening to it a few times. Uh, just to see what you didn't pick up the first time around. I know I will. We're going to start with a bit about Steve, although we start at the very beginning of the conversation in a very unusual way, just having a chat. We figured that we were talking so much before the podcast actually began that we may as well just hit record while we waited for coffees uh, from a local coffee shop here in Melbourne. If you do have the time, it's probably worth getting a hold of the video, which you'll find in the podcast player description. So if you look into your podcast player, there's a YouTube link there where you can watch the podcast because we record many of our podcasts in video too. and you can actually get a sense of Steve's palpable energy and enthusiasm for the topics which he is talking about. If you're a corporate, you're a CEO, or you're looking for to fill spot at your event, I think Steve would make a fantastic speaker. Or thought leader on things like technology. So get in contact. There's a link in the show notes. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this casual, wide ranging, and yet in depth conversation with Steve Samantino, the futurist.
1: It's so cool now that I reckon you really good podcast. they in many ways replaced what might have been a talk show on TV. And now it's a podcast, it's a listen show and a talk show. They were listen shows first. Now they're. Visual talk shows.
0: Yeah. People still get confused though when you say podcast and there's a video. They're like, it's almost like it doesn't make sense to them. They're like, really? It's a video cast? And you're like, no, no, it's just a podcast. Interestingly, Apple, I believe, was the first, if not one of the first, to do video like podcasts, kind of like what YouTube is. It's so
1: interesting in startups. We often say, That idea's been around a long time. Mm. And in startups, we say being early is the same as being wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, right? Right. And they were wrong. But I think often something fails a few times before. It's very rare that the first iteration of an idea or a product actually takes off. Mm. Everyone thinks first to market always wins, but it's rare. It's like a, a marketing fallacy that the first brand wins. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Harvard University was the first university in the U.S., Oh, right. And that's why it's the
0: most famous, <laughs> right? But is it the most famous because it was first or is it because it's in well, every movie? We, yeah. we,
1: we'll never know, but it was definitely first. Yeah. And the 22 Laws of Marketing is a really great marketing book. And I think the first law is be first to market. And if you can't be first to market, create a subsegment that you can be first in. But I think there's probably more successful companies that weren't first to market Mm. but it doesn't fit the narrative and so often the sound bites in business that win are things that we can conceptualize that should make sense even though they don't mm. and that's why counterintuitive investing can be so powerful you know, being a contrarian yeah because the narrative is so strong and we're storytelling creatures and we want to believe something that's simple that breaks down the complex and we always say oh there's a simple answer to every complex problem, but they're usually wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I found. Um, we had Alan Duffy on the show, who's a, um, he's actually based here in Melbourne, he's out in Swinburne. He's a professor and he does everything space related, space technology as oh. it relates to here on Earth as well. Mm. And he said one of the great problems that we face as a society globally is not listening to scientists who say that the answer isn't simple, because it's true, right? Some, some questions require complex answers and yet we just kind of break it down again and again and again and again to something that the general population can digest. But sometimes it's not good enough.
1: It's, it's, social media is really responsible for some good and terrible things. All mm. technologies are. Our first technology is the knife, I guess. And that's responsible for half the homicides in the world. But <laughs> my daughter used it today to put peanut butter on her toast. mm Social media has really dumbed down society. I've got no doubt about that, and algorithms have as well. In the old days in media, you had to earn the right to have a voice that was worth hearing. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And we cannot understate the importance of that. And while we can still find voices that are worth hearing, and some that may never have had the opportunity, you know, podcasting is a great example where you can get some really thoughtful people who might not have fit into ABC or Channel 9 or BBC or CNN but their voices are worth hearing. But I think there's the voices that aren't worth hearing far outweigh the voices that are worth hearing in a democratised media environment.
0: Yeah, we, I always I often think about this. So there was even that uh, thing that we saw yesterday in Parliament where there was a kind of like a, a statement made by one of the uh, senators, I think, and, and it came back and um, they retracted the statement for mysterious reasons. Um, it was a better I think it was about allegations of sexual assault anyway right. I thought about this because one of the issues is that now the government is proposing a revision of the Privacy Act which would exclude the journalists being able to use private information without consent. So, for example, if we exchange an email, we may need both of our consent to release that email. Mm. And so the kind of the freedom of information and um, like people's awareness of important topics would require consent, otherwise everyone would be sued. And so this is one of the things that a lot of the big media houses are pushing back against. But my takeaway from that was a lot of the new age media, like for example, at this podcast, Mm. say we reach like 50,000 people, I would have no idea that those laws exist and I would just go and publish. Yeah. Right. I'm probably not going to publish but private information in the first sure. step. But if you think about that, what advantage that creates is it puts the if that law goes through and that those changes go through, it actually puts genuine journalists at a substantial, um, substantially weaker position than say you or I if we just write a Twitter post or something like yeah, that. Right. And I think about that as in regulation and in who gets the voice. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard. That's just an example.
1: Yeah. I mean, my thought is really clear. Journalists should be able to uncover information which goes against people's privacy because it's the fourth estate. It's it's important to democracy. Mm. To shine a light in dark places has always been the job of journalism. And to try and protect privacy as a preamble is something that is the default, I think is wrong. Mm. I think what we should have is... These are things that you can and can't publish and the onus is on those two parties to determine whether or not that was of public interest or wasn't and maybe have some boundaries on what those things are so that the journalist can know and the private person can know. Like, yeah, just muckraking stuff that doesn't really add value to society should be protected. But if it's someone who's a public figure and what they do outside of their work is of public importance, then it should be. I feel like we had the right laws going back. And a lot of the measures that are happening in society with new policies and laws are moving towards a draconian environment that protects more people than should be protected. I'm not like one of these free speech evangelists that everything should be Mm. above board, but there are certain areas where different rules should apply. And if you're a journalist who's sharing information that's important from a social or an economic or political nature, then I think – you know, or a business nature, I think a different set of rules should apply. And I think we should err on the side of caution to protect journalism. And any government that doesn't want to do that has their own vested interests at heart, not the truth. Mm. And things are really, really sliding globally towards a society which is becoming more draconian and the laws are becoming, let's call them less free. Mm.
0: Obviously, I spent a lot of time thinking about this because it's quite. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a dramatic shift, isn't it, from a long time ago?
1: It really is. Yeah. It, it, it really is, and and in Western markets, mm. um, yeah, some of the laws that were passed during COVID, and this is I'm, I'm neither here nor there on whether or not things should have been locked down, or whether people have different opinions on that. But but for sure, some of the laws that were passed during that period, which gave the government. Uh, authoritarian control on certain things, we should be pretty worried about.
2: Mm.
0: And Monique's just around <laughs> with your coffee. is the
2: best. I love this. So good. Oh, sorry, this is last latte. Oh, from oh, Axel, why? Axel
0: why? Coffee Roasters. I mean, we're in Melbourne. Why it's not? winter, it's coffee, it's everything tremendous. It's going, to, it's going to tip me over. Three in a day is going to tip this me over. This is my third as well. Okay.
1: So cheers. Cheers. We've got to cheers all drinks because you know what we don't want to have, Monique? We want, we don't want to have temperature drink discrimination. Hot drinks deserve it too. I've always said that.
0: <laughs> okay. So we'll get to the formal questions in a moment. But um, why do you have one sugar in a takeaway and not otherwise?
1: Yeah. So if I have a coffee that's in a glass in a cafe- I'll just have the strong latte on its own. But in a takeaway cup, I have the sugar. And, and the reason is in a takeaway cup, when you, when you bend it backwards to drink it, the uh, foam and the crema, which has more of the casein and the sugar in it, goes to the back of the cup. And so you don't get it. But when you're drinking it in a cup where it's straight, you can get the crema and drink that and, and that ah. has casein in it, which has, it's the sugary part of milk. And so I get, ah. I believe a very similar sugar fix uh by having the sugar in that's my look i have not scientifically tested that
0: <laughs> but i'm staying with it yeah fine enjoy it uh I, I, I like that and uh what's your favorite coffee in melbourne coffee location or or say beans or however you want to frame
1: it i uh, wouldn't i go to rudimentary cafe which is near my house it's mm-hmm. like my quasi office in mm-hmm. Footscray. and in the city i like uh
0: patricia <clears throat> I'm gonna wait for Kate <laughs> to see this because um, she doesn't like that you have to sit on milk crates. I, that's what I love about, and
1: yeah. I love that you have to stand up. Yeah, I really like the decor because I think that in business, and if you're in the food category, people taste with their eyes as much as they do with their mouth.
2: Mm.
1: Right, and that's actually been you know, from wine testing and awards with foods and everything. It's yeah. A large part of and, – and that's actually physically true. I'm not just saying that as an ironic thing. Oh, if it looks nice, you'll like it better. No, literally, certain synapses in your brain go off, which open you up to different flavor profiles because you are stimulated visually.
0: Hmm. Okay.
1: So that's that's actually a, a true connection. And I love it when I go to Patricia that you're standing up and they've got their leather aprons on and they have the the – the mineral water there is just yeah. standard. Hey, you don't have to buy mineral water here. You come get an overpriced coffee for us. We got you when it comes to <laughs> mineral water, right? And, and think about all the smart brands in the world, right? The smart brands in the world have things that raise you to a certain level. They have value adds. Mm. Um, they have intangible benefits, Which justify the entire experience, and on a spreadsheet, right? The CFO is going to look at it and say, "Well, wait a minute. We would increase our profit dramatically if we didn't give away the free soda water every time someone has a coffee, because the free soda water is costing us fifteen cents, and we do three thousand coffees a week. And if we add that up, that's five and a half thousand dollars, or whatever the numbers are. Right? And you have Mm. you know three hundred bucks in soda water a week." You know, we would increase our profit and over a year it's this, this, and this. It's like, yeah, it would reduce your margins, but the one thing the spreadsheet doesn't count is how many people come because that's there. Mm. And the most valuable brands in the world are the ones with intangible benefits. And I'll I'll give you two examples, Mm -hmm. okay? So the most valuable company in the world? Apple. Apple, right? It's the same microchips from the same place in Fujian province, it's the same shit inside. And they charge five times the price because they put that human element into They put the intangible benefits of the UX, the design, the beautiful steel, and it. it's, it's just, it's art. All right. And then, so that's the most valuable company in the world, what, just under three trillion in market capitalization. And battling for the position of the richest person in the world? The LVMH. Yeah. What's he yeah. sell? Like luxury goods. No, overpriced handbags. Luxury goods because <laughs> what the value is in your mind, yeah, true. right? Look, I'm sure there's an artisan who lives somewhere in France or you could probably buy down at Victoria Market a beautiful handbag that's just as good as the other one. But the real value is created in people's minds. Even Elon Musk, who world's richest person, shouldn't be because he's got the most overpriced large cap. Company in corporate history, and I can tell you why that is in great detail (laughs) if you wish. He's, again, the mind of the Muscovites who are pushing up the share price to a company that sells, what, over a million cars a year versus Toyota that sells 13 million a year and is valued at 700 billion Mm -hmm. market cap? That's a valuation of 700,000 per car sold. How many cars do you have to sell before you get your money back? What about the software? Every other car company in the world has that software too. Everyone's acting <laughs> like no one has it. He has no advantage in software. Yeah. He has no advantage in uh, electric cars. And he's already cutting price on the products mm. to make the volume. And he's in a geopolitical dangerous position where a large part of his manufacturing is now based in China.
0: Yeah. they did get gigafactory in Australia. Never do it though. Did you see they cut the two models? The the model X can't get in Australia anymore. I only know this because I ordered a Tesla the other day. Oh, did you? Yeah. So you're not, you're a Muscovite, are we? Well, no, I don't own shares. I don't, I've never bought into anything. Well, I bought the, um, what's it called? The satellite from SpaceX. Oh,
1: SpaceX. Did you buy into that?
0: No, you know, the, um, I can't remember what the name of it is. What's Starlink? Yeah, I got a Starlink because our internet was pretty shoddy and it was amazing. Um, but yeah, I only bought the Tesla because of the fringe benefits <laughs> tax. Tax, <bet>. right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I, my last car I bought was a Mercedes and I could have bought a Tesla, but I just got so much more car Yeah, for the same price. I'm like, why would I? I'll just get an electric next time. And I, well, you know, I, I guess I care about the environment, but um, we all
0: say that, but mm. no, one, no one really acts like they care. This is going to be a great intro to the podcast because people love Tesla on the show. Like well, some love it, some hate it. But um, we're going to keep, uh, this is good, we're just going to go anyway.
1: Oh my God, the Tesla. I'm embarrassed that fund managers believe that this company is not going to go down to 60 billion market cap. It's got, it's going to lose 80 to 90%. It's gone up a lot this year, nearly doubled. And that's because the market can stay irrational for an incredibly long time. In fact, as Charlie Munger said, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Right? And that's true. And real money gets made during irrational moments. Um, but I think that he's the world's greatest storyteller. He's, he's telling a trillion dollar story. The irony of the things that he purports to want to benefit, like the environment, is like, oh, I'm selling electric cars. Don't look at the rocket launch. <laughs> Don't look over there. <laughs> Enough fossil fuel emissions for 10 million cars a year in one rocket launch. I mean, it's not that much. But... Like, seriously, <laughs> oh, I'm going to save the world oh, while I build uh, Starlink so I can go and <laughs> live on Mars and for us, seven billionaires can all just come and hang out and he's saving the world? <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And in fact, yes, he's, he's done some great things. I'm not saying he's not a genius and I'm not saying he hasn't built companies of extraordinary value. Even to go from zero to 60 billion in value of Tesla, it's extraordinary. But it is not worth $700 billion. It's certainly not worth a trillion. And it's not worth more than Toyota. Mm. You know why Toyota's got such a poor valuation in terms of price earnings ratios and market cap? Last time I looked it was about $220 billion, and they sell 13 million cars mm. a year is because of the culture in Japan is one of being humble. Mm. They don't tell their story. If any of the listeners want to see something that is absolutely mind-blowing, they should go have a look at the Woven City. Woven city. Woven city. Toyota is building a city mm. on a 100-acre lot which has warehouses underground. It's all powered by hydrogen, has little pods that can cruise around and put people in it and pizza shops and e-commerce, like an entire design of a new city based on the future of mobility and green-based cities. It's incredible. Hmm. Now, if Elon Musk made that movie, it's a movie at this point and they're building it, Yeah. if he put that out there, like the share price would have went to three trillion, but they're just they're just the, or the market value. But he's really great at telling stories. He's on the front page. I mean, he bought himself for forty five billion dollars when he bought Twitter. He bought himself. He was the number one user on Twitter with the most followers. Mm. His ego is that big. He bought himself. He literally bought himself, and now it's worth ten percent of the price of what he paid for because <laughs> he's lost eighty percent of his advertisers. I mean, but Tesla's incredibly overpriced because here's the thing. They might have software, so does every other car company. They bend metal. It's It's got software valuations on something which is a physical industrial product. And to say, oh, no, no, you don't understand it's a software company. Well, if they're a software company, so is Ford, so is GM, so mm. is everyone else. Right? I'd much rather have the electric Porsche or the new um, EQ electric Mercedes than, than a Tesla. Mm. So their advantage has been eroded. They've done some smart things with selling direct to consumers, really smart. They've done a really smart thing where they've got, you know, 17,000 charges all around the US and they might become the platform for that. But there's no margin in that anyway because electricity is getting close to zero cost. We're going to have zero marginal cost energy in the near future because we get all the energy from the sun and then we just distribute it in the same way that content is free.
0: So you think Tesla, like over, say, the long pole, like 5% years, comes back down to that 100 billion or whatever?
1: Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Zero doubt. I'll bet my net worth on it.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, we are recording this in June 2023. Um, not that we don't have to bet your net worth on it, but uh, we'll see you in five years. I'm not saying that it's not going to happen. By the way, I have no view on it. I oh, just—I have a
1: really strong view. I don't <laughs> know if you've noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, so you've got to have an opinion. You know what? Yeah. Have an opinion. I think it's everyone a- is so scared to have an opinion on business or finance. Have an opinion, and it's okay to get it wrong.
0: It's okay, but have one because we're humans, and we're allowed to have an opinion. I'm, I'm very happy to say that I'm looking forward to driving in the Tesla. I don't know if it make a good investment though. Yeah. but I never thought I'd buy an expensive car, to be honest. That's what I'd, I'd call it an expensive car. It's about 60 grand to yeah. get the benefits and you get a rebate as well from the government, which is going broke. Mm. So they've pulled back on it. But um, that's basically the only reason I could buy it is like could justify buying it is because you could buy it through the business and then yeah. you have 100% personal use and it's still claimable through the business. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some benefits. So maybe if, I don't know if the Mercedes fits into that, if it's 100% electric or whatever. But no, it's not. It's not yeah. electric. It's
1: a petrol car. It's an ICE yeah, right. internal combustion engine.
0: Oh, but, but that, the Mercedes one that you mentioned before, I, I didn't yeah. look into it. Uh, yeah, it's not cheap. It's about $120, yeah, I think. Yeah, so I wouldn't – I don't think you
1: And I think the new Porsche out. is about 200 Yeah, right. So I don't know how those numbers change based on the price of the car and the
0: – Yeah, I think it might it might cap out. Yeah. But um, interesting. Okay, I like it. So let's get into this first question, which I was very fascinated by this Uh, first question. I forgot what it was now. So let's go. So you said this was a TikTok video that you put up, and you had a picture of Hungry Jacks in the background, or Burger King or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And you said, this is a quote The perception of the rooms you're in changes where people think you're at. And I think this was to set the scene. You were reflecting on this because you met the person that started the franchise. And you were at a conference doing a speech about emerging technologies, and there was I think like 30 or 40 people there in the room. Mm. So that's what I remember from the video. But this comment was really interesting to me. So just to repeat it, the perception of the rooms you're in changes where people think you're at. So I'll I'll tell the story. Yeah, sure. Do it. So I met Jack
1: Cowan, Mm -hmm. and this room had a few billionaires in it, and it was with Ernst and Young, who had their... NDE the uh, non-executive NED mm-hmm. uh, director's meeting, mm-hmm. annual meeting, and they get someone to do a keynote speech. And that was me. And this was 2014, I think.
0: Yeah, right. it's a while ago.
1: Yeah. And I did the speech. And I remember getting lambasted for you know saying Bitcoin will never do anything and all <laughs> these tech, all these things that have all happened now, they were like challenging me and everything. Jack Cowan was really positive. He came up and he said it was a really good speech. He had his American accent. And I said, oh, thanks. I said, oh, I used to work for you. He said, really? I said, yeah, at Hungry Jacks in Werribee. That's where I worked. That's where I was when I did that TikTok. I stood out the front of it to yeah, do yeah. it, yeah? You yeah. have to have authenticity. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, really? Which, which Hungry Jacks? And I told him, he said, oh, I remember it. And he like even described the place. Like he <laughs> he genuinely remembered it. And I said, you know, I still know how to make a Whopper. And he said, I bet you done. I said, no, I do." Do you want me to tell you? He said, yeah, tell me. He obviously knows how to make a whopper because he owns friends, I said. You 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 put the bottom bun and meat in the microwave. That mm-hmm. they do that by the way, in the microwave, for 20 seconds with the cheese on top, folded, overlaid cheese, mayonnaise, start in the middle, swipe to the left and then across to the right all the way. Enough lettuce that you can slightly see the mayonnaise through. Two tomatoes at three o'clock and nine o'clock, hmm. four pickles. Three and a half circles of ketchup outweighs in, a light sprinkling of onion, and then put your two thumbs on the three o'clock and the nine o'clock of the uh, tomatoes. The, the tomatoes and pull it over the top, put the timer on it, and put it down the chute. <laughs> and he was really impressed, and he said, and that's why you're a multimillionaire. <laughs> and that's when I laughed, because at that time, I wasn't. But he thought... Because I was in there with them in this fancy boardroom, sipping espressos, telling them about the future of technology, that I was one of him. I was Mm. one of them. I was like him. But I wasn't. I was just some cat who'd just written a book and had a few startups here and there that I did okay with, but I wasn't like a multi-millionaire-like. Mm. He was, or certainly a billionaire, but he thought that because I was there with, and it was like a moment in time I never forgot. And ever since then, I've thought about what rooms are you in, and what is the perception of where you're at in life based on where you are. And the number one thing that anyone can do to change their life is this change places. Like if, if I was going to give anyone advice mm. who wanted to change their life, I would say change places. And they feel like that's a throwaway statement, but it isn't. I say, like, okay, you're unhealthy, change places, go to the gym. What do you mean just go to the gym? Just go. But you, So if you go there, go, go there at least once a day. Instead of the couch, go to the gym. Uh, I'm unhealthy with, with my diet. Okay, change the aisles you shop at in the supermarket, change places. Oh, I'm in an area with lots of crime, so change where you live. I don't know enough. So change places. Go to the library. Oh, I don't learn anything when I, I'm on the internet. Okay, so change places of the web address that you're putting. I'm serious. Changing places is the easiest way to change your life, whether it's finance, health, fitness, relationships. good friend of mine's been divorced for a number of years, really wants to meet someone. I'm like, they don't walk through your lounge room all that often. <laughs> So you got to change places. Go where you might meet mm. someone, even if it's online or Tinder, or whatever. They're not gonna. It's just not gonna happen. So you got to change. You change places. You change your life, right? Because it puts you where people who are doing that type of business are. Fit people are in the gym. Healthy people eat eat health foods. People who want to meet people go out and meet people. Mm. And and also, when you're in that place, they perceive you to be one of them. And and if you're a little bit lower. Here's what happens. They actually share secrets with you because we have this little cohort that we work with in society. When someone's in your cohort, you share ideas with each other Mm. because they're one of us. And so if you're a little bit below in social or financial status, if you're with people who are, they will drag you up. Likewise, if you're someone who's achieving great things and then you downgrade yourself, they will drag you down. So
0: do you believe in the average of the five people closest to you? Never a truer
1: word spoken. Yeah, right.
0: Have you done that yourself where you put yourself in a different room other than, say, that one?
1: Yeah, I I do do
0: it. Um, Are you mindful of who you spend time with? Yeah, I am.
1: And I've got to be honest with you. My two closest friends are really struggling financially, but I make a concerted effort to drag them up. Because it could go either way. See, sometimes what you have is you have this Venn diagram overlap of where you are and where they are, mm. and I, I really try and drag them up because friendship really, really matters. But I, I do make a conscious effort of where I spend my time.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, so, my next question, which was to lead on from that first one, yeah. which is based on something I think you wrote in 2014, Uh, You've dug deep, haven't you? (laughs) I
1: love this. This is pro-level podcasting right here today.
0: (laughs) So the question is, is it possible to tell if a founder, CEO, or just basically anyone is faking it? And the reason that I bring this up is in a post, you said something to the effect of the thing is that we are all faking it. Even when we are regarded as an expert in our field, none of us really know anything with absolute certainty We guess, we estimate, we take a chance, we copy others and we just forge ahead. And this was a really interesting thing because you referenced like an example from the tally where um, there were, I'll let you tell the story about the graffiti artist. Oh,
1: wow, Yeah, I remember
0: that. Yeah, but one of the things that I, like I see this all the time when I work with small businesses or myself or just talking to other people Even the CEOs from everyone, a lot of people are just making it up. Like, we don't have 2020 vision into the future, right? So, how do you tell if someone is like faking it? And also, um, I guess, how do you judge people is an extension of that. Okay. But the story is really relevant. Do you want to go to the story first? I feel like it would help.
1: Yeah. So, I was watching this TV show, I was on a business trip in London. And it came on TV. It's called Faking It. The show is actually called Faking Mm. It. And what they would do is they would bring someone from a world that they're unfamiliar with and they would have a mentor who trains them for X period of time to become a fast expert in a topic. So each episode would be on one person. So they would have someone and teach a celebrity chef or they would teach someone to be uh, an artist or I saw one where someone pretended to be a conductor and did the philharmonic orchestra and... Slated. But this particular episode was a toffee kid from a private school in London from Eton or something, and they wanted to teach him to be a graffiti artist, right? And he had this mentor who was from, you know, the, the east end of London, this, you know, street level who was a graffiti artist and into rap. And he had this long toffee hair and he wore like tweed jackets and everything, so they changed his clothes. They taught him how to speak with a street kind of accent, they shaved off his hair and he went into a graffiti contest, right? And so over the period of time, they taught him like how to do graffiti on pen and paper and then how to do practice on walls. And he had this – and they really – one of the things I loved about it is they developed this relationship between two people from totally different mm. worlds, which was really the beautiful thing about this episode. I think you can find it on YouTube. It's a great episode. And then at the end of it, they have this contest where it's like – a rap music kind of night where they have in a warehouse two like three graffiti world uh, walls where they have a competition between three graffiti artists and then they have some experts who judge who is who is the best and they had to guess which one was the faker <laughs> and none of them guessed it right none of them guessed it right because he moved up the learning curve quickly now. Of course, there are going to be some things in life where like if you're an engineer that builds bridges, that's not something you can <laughs> fake or anything that I want anyone to fake, right? But We're talking about a business and an investment kind of world here or art or theatrical things. He he won it and it just changed my perception on life. And it sort of gave me permission to believe that we're kind of, we are all faking, it, especially in nuanced areas like business and investment where it's not science, there's art to it. Anything that has it. A humanity or a flavor of art to it, the mere nature of it is that it's imperfect. So, no one can know anything. So, we are all faking it mm. to a certain extent because th- there's no way – it's not scientific. And even science actually sometimes is in a state of flux where we uncover new ideas. And so, I think we're all faking it to a certain extent and I think – the only time you can tell if someone is faking it is if they're suffering from imposter syndrome, right? Because I think they believe what you believe. And if you believe in yourself, that's enough. That's enough because experts make mistakes. Amateurs make mistakes. Well, who's an expert and who's an amateur? Well, someone who's been in the game for a little bit longer can regard themselves as an expert. But if you are confident enough, I reckon confidence will take you further in life than competence. Because we can all be reasonably competent and there's such a gap between perfection and reality, that's where confidence lives. Mm. You see any CEO, any politician, I'll tell you now, they are operating at a high level of confidence more than competence.
0: That's such an interesting thing, Ryan. We see it all the time in investing. We see... A lot of overconfidence, you could say, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's uh, undercompetence. Uh, <laughs> Both. Yeah. So it's a it's such a hard thing, and um, that really that is really interesting about this idea of imposter syndrome, because I find that the questioners are often the people that have imposter syndrome. They're the ones that are unsure of themselves. They're like, this could be the thing. Whereas, like you said before, like with opinions and stuff, come out and give me the opinion. Have it. Yeah. Well, the thing with imposter syndrome, it can be tied back deep into
1: our DNA where errors could kill you. Yeah. All right? Most of the things that we do now for a living and in life in modern industrialized society aren't going to kill you, like large majority. Okay, you're stupid in a car or you you know extreme sports or whatever, but but generally in business and in life, most things aren't going to kill you. Mm. But mistakes were super costly for 199,000 years of human existence. You get eaten by a saber-tooth tiger, you fall off a cliff. few. You know you go bison hunting and you make a mistake, you get a spear in your back. You know. if Mistakes were costly. We haven't had a software upgrade in 200,000 years. We're running a 200,000-year-old piece of software up here. And so what we need to do is extricate ourselves from parts of that software which are redundant now in a modern life form. And that's really difficult to thing to do. And the only way you can do it is by constantly reminding yourself, this won't kill me it's okay. And we're really worried about being embarrassed and making mistakes because if you were pushed out from the tribe, that, that would kill you. And social cohesion is so important. Mm. That's why we tolerate things that are mistruths because social cohesion is more important than the truth to our survival in a historical context.
2: Mm. Yeah, I
0: think uh, Yuval Rai talked a bit about that in- Yeah, uh, he does. In Sapiens and, and elsewhere, where he talks about you know, the stories that we tell are actually the things that keep us alive and bind us. Absolutely. Mm.
1: They're the most important thing because we're the only species that can envisage a future through storytelling. And our entire economy, the building that we're in now, that we're sitting in in Melbourne, which was probably built during the gold rush days, is a nice old building, yeah, isn't it? Right. World, yeah. um, someone sold that story before any bricks were laid. Because the story is the first thing that gets bought with anything. And in finance circles, the story is more profitable than reality. Because if it wasn't, every company on every stock exchange would have the same price earnings ratio. And the reason price earnings ratios are different across different companies is this fact and only this fact. There's nothing else. Is the story that we tell ourselves and CEOs in the industry tells ourselves about that stock on whether or not its fortunes are better or worse than the other one. Mm. otherwise all the price earnings ratios would be exactly the same
0: so we're doing a tesla v Elo- uh, tesla v uh, so Toyota. that's right i was just bringing <laughs> it back to my key point <laughs> yeah it's true rather right? we we in finance uh, lexicon we talk about this as uh, sentiment right it's just a fancy word yeah for narrative or, yeah, or it the stories yeah yeah and it does describe a lot of the returns that come from like you can quantify this as like mathematically, you can see when zero to five years, it's the most dominant, like explanatory variable of market yeah. returns is actually that expansion or contraction in the the multiple, if you like. Right. Yeah. It's only when you get to ten years that it becomes. well, is this business actually good? And that's yeah, when you start did, to see the true power. Yeah,
1: and and that that, that, that again, I don't. Know, I'm sure if it's Munger or Buffett, but in the short run, it's a popularity device. Mm. And in the long run, it's a weighing machine. It was probably mm. Benjamin Graham. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. There you go. A bit of Benji. Yeah. <laughs> Great book, that. Yeah. That's one of the hardest books I ever read. But I stuck with it. Yeah?
0: Yeah. I, I, security analysis got me. Uh Intelligent Investor, obviously a bit easy to read. Yeah. But security analysis is just a Thanks for that. You just dissed me then.
1: <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I'm I, I'm I, was, I thought you were referring to security analysis. <laughs> no, no, but no, I was <laughs> right. The intelligent investor was tough. I oh no, it was tough. tough it to was ring. tough, yeah. but, for I me, thought,
0: but I thought security analysis was just—I didn't bother with oh, security analysis. That was—that's just like a—I no, don't I even don't know. It's it. like a 1920s textbook, right? So it's just—it's they're, they're really hard
1: there. Yeah, I yeah. think so.
0: But you know, what's funny. I, I think that sometimes if you do something that's
1: difficult, your mind works on it subconsciously for a long time, and you understand it later. Mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post years ago called "Understanding It Later." Mm-hmm. Do some work, read the whole thing. Once you've finished the work, you say, I'm not sure I understood that, that's okay. Mm -hmm. Because your mind needs to digest things in the same way that your stomach digests proteins and carbohydrates. And your mind, yeah, it's well documented that the subconscious mind works really hard. And I think sometimes, like on an idle Tuesday, go, Oh, that's what that was. It was just like, hit me like a bolt of lightning about something that I read seven years ago that I finally understand, or something that my father told me Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. I'm like, Oh, and I have like this moment of revelation. <laughs>
0: um, when you said like read the book, it took me four years to read um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I don't know if you've wow. read that. Wow, I've yeah. heard about that book. I haven't read it. Everyone talks about, just like they talk about security analysis. And they recommend intelligent investors to new investors, and I'm like, I, nah, it's, it's too not hard. Not the book that I went. It's way too hard. Never recommend. But um, even I, a
1: random walk down Wall Street's not easy yeah. to read as well. Which, which is my favorite investing book, but All it's right. not even close.
0: I, I reckon you'd I would have been faster reading Zen and the Art of Motorco- Motorcycle Man if I read it backwards because I didn't know until the end that there's three stories in one. I was just confused the whole time. So, when you
1: say you read it backwards, please tell me that you would have read the words backwards as well because <laughs> yeah, then absolutely. I think you're at like a, a, a Zen level of intelligence well, as well.
0: I think that's the purpose of the book, yeah. There you go. Um. Okay. So, you mentioned your old man there, maybe just in passing saying maybe he's taught, taught you something back in the day or something and you've- the light bulbs has gone off years later. Um, what was a young Steve like? Because I know I, in the conversation you had with Kate, I think you made a remark like you had a business at about 10, but you were programming or learning to code at like mm. 10, 11, mm. 12, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, it was. Tell, tell me a bit more about at the that. time, really. Like how did that, like, where did that curiosity come from? <laughs> I was always
1: dissatisfied with things that I was told to learn. I've always hated someone telling me to learn this. I hated it. But i am always been really strong on self-learning. And I wonder if I was born now, I would have done a lot better than being born in the 70s because I grew up with three TV channels, whatever magazines. You're exposed to someone else has curated everything for you. Mm. School was particularly curated where it's like rote learning. Yeah, And so I actually just don't like people telling me what to do. I just <laughs> hate it. And and the work that I do now I really like because I have a lot of five-minute clients and this is not dismissive to them. It's just I don't like doing the same thing for too long and doing keynote speeches and writing books and Mm. doing thought leadership on technology is is really cool because I just have those little spurts and I can do what I want to do and explore what I find interesting. And I love computer coding because I could make something that was mine that no one told me what to do. What they did was give me a template of yeah. how code works. And I went end to end through my TRS 80 coding book, which was in Q Basic, hmm. which is what the first Windows and Microsoft programs were built in. Hmm. Um, and that was, there was only a couple of coding languages back then. There's a whole lot now. And I just loved that I could make something that was mine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm lazy as well. <laughs> And so the first business I had was an organic egg farm. I grew up on a, on a farm and I wanted to make some money. And I couldn't get a job because you had to be 14 years and nine months. And I wanted a new BMX and I didn't have any money. And my dad said, why don't we um, you start an egg farm and start selling eggs? Because he was a really entrepreneurial Italian farmer. And, and so I remember we went and bought 20 hens. They were a dollar each. Um, yeah. And when they were more than a year old, they only lay an
0: egg every two days. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They've just, I, think, I, think they've, uh, I think the industry has done some modifications yeah, over yeah, the years. Yeah, they have. Yeah.
1: But I didn't even know it was an organic egg farm then. Like that word hadn't even been invented. Yeah. But I remember I used to sell the eggs and say, look, my eggs are better than everyone else's. Look how yellow the yolks are because I let my hens out during the day and they just pick in the grass and have bugs and everything and it's really good food because it's natural and that's what they would naturally eat and that's why my eggs are better. I was explaining like an organic supply chain before one existed. <laughs> and, and there's something interesting in that is that Sometimes you're doing something amazing and you don't even realize it because you're just looking at things in an alternative way. And actually, I was trying to sell something just based on what I had in front of me. It's like the gold was in front of me and I'm just using that as a selling benefit. And now that's a whole entire industry. Mm. And I just used to feed my hands and – well, I actually worked out too that I, I didn't have to buy as much food if I let them out because they could find enough bugs and – and worms and just feed themselves yep. like they would. And the eggs were nicer. And I'd sell them to the family and I'd sell them to the fruit and veggie shop. Back in the day, I used to get eggs at fruit and veggie shop. I don't know if people remember that. Yeah. And you used to go to the supermarket and get your dry groceries then, mm. uh, the vegetable, fruit and veg, and and mm. then go to the deli and the butcher. It's come back a little bit that way. So that's what I did. And I just did it just to make money. And I used to sell a dozen eggs for a dollar thirty-five, and in the store they were $2. So I undercut but I had lower costs because I wasn't buying as much food mm. and I did all the labor myself. But I was motivated to do it because I would win. It wasn't because someone said, do this. Why? Because I'm telling you to and you'll thank me later. Mm. It was like, oh, no, if I water my hens and build a, life, a nice uh, hatch for them and I'm going to make money and I can buy things I want, like, like a real simple equation that a kid can understand. Do this, get this. Mm. Not do this because I told you and you'll thank me later. Mm. That's not enough for kids. You want this, do that, and you can have that. Mm. Cause incentives shape behavior. Like, that's one of the things I don't think we talk enough about in in, in corporate or investing is this, this sentence. Incentives shape behavior. If you want to see how someone's behaving and why, look at the incentive structure underneath it and you're gonna see everything you need to know.
0: Mm. I uh I, I like this idea because you've spoken about it before about the idea of um is it living off the eggs? Yeah. Yeah. And the similarities uh, and the words that we use in finance and agriculture and how that shapes. And because we'll talk about it in a minute, but this whole journey through like anthropology and how you mm. use that to inform the future. But I, I found that story that you tell about the chickens and how it's so, I never thought about that, how <laughs> like it is. To investing. It's exactly the same thing. Hmm.
1: So yield is a word that we use. And my dad taught me this too. My dad would give me all this Italian farmer wisdom (laughs) all the time. Like he's got so many of them. It's crazy. And he'd say, Steve, always live off the eggs. I go, what do you mean? He said, well, if you eat the chook, it's done. The chook's gone. There's no more eggs. But the chook will give you an egg every day. There's enough protein in that to keep you alive. Live off the eggs. And I'm like- can't we have something else? And he's like, slap me across the head. You're not listening. This is a metaphor for life. All right. When you're earning money, live off the small amount. Mm. Right? Uh don't, don't have an investment and then buy and sell the investment because you are not going to get that yield. If you live off the eggs, there's going to be enough for you to live on. Right. Every now and again, let an egg hatch and you'll get another chook mm. and then you have more eggs. And then let another one hatch and then you have more and more chooks and you have more and more eggs and you have more than you need and then you sell the excess. And then it's it's just this classic metaphor for an asset and then the return on the asset. The chook is the asset. Okay. Hmm. But if you buy and sell the asset, it's complex. Or if you eat the asset or eat eat the asset and then you eat the chook or use the money from the asset, it's no good. You've got to start again. And so you've got to live on the yield and not the asset, and then accumulate as many assets as you can. And you have so much yield, you can buy more assets. And mm. you just get into this positive spiral. And so you would just say, you know, live off the eggs. Let one hatch every now and again. And then, you know, when you've got enough chooks, you can have a chook every now and again. Mm. You can you can have that. You can eat that asset or sell that asset or use it in a different way. Mm. And so it's really the way things compound as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, the idea of growth. and Yeah. Yield and all these things Well, we every, every, about every, sustainability.
1: <laughs> so every business word that we have almost, all of them come from agriculture. Because the first ever businesses that we had as a species were during the agrarian era. Mm. That was when we stopped and stayed in one place and said, okay, we're going to trap some animals, put some fences around, grow wheat, uh, mm. have livestock and all of the and then after that it's like well rather than me having one pig one cow and some rice growing over here and some wheat there why don't you do the wheat billy billy will do the cows and mary's got the, the pigs and, and and we divide the labor and then rather than me cutting them up we'll have joey he'll be the butcher that's where it started mm. and so i mean even portfolio management it's a it's a portfolio of different forms of agriculture growth yield seasonality, mm. crop rotation, portfolio, all of these terms, all of this terminology comes from agriculture. And all the answers to a smart business and investment policy can be found if you will look at agriculture. And so how would a farmer answer this question? Mm. Right. How would a little community managing its various forms of agriculture to have enough food to live on, enough food to feed everyone, and enough to survive a calamity? Like a drought, mm. an economic drought, right? Mm. Or a storm. And we use those words even so oh, it's an economic drought, it's a storm, it's a pandemic, and, mm. because they were the challenges that you would have.
0: Mm. It's interesting because I speak to a lot of people that go on to be CEOs or investors who are come from a farming background, and I don't think they ever made that connection. So mm. uh, I grew up on a small farm myself as well, mm. and I don't think I ever made the connection, but how. The likeness is incredible. He even said, "Like you know, if you have your livestock, your stock, if you're- stock, it's a stock." Yeah, and and in the original stock
1: markets were stocks. Yeah, it was like grains and feeds and various elements we would trade them. Mm. And even if you look back at the old pork bellies, when we used to do options trading, mm. you know, it was to, so that we could have set prices so that we could reduce our risk either way. Mm. So, yeah. that you, you would get a decent price on pork valleys and the person growing it would get a decent price and the butcher wouldn't have to pay too much. So, we both make a compromise. So, we meet in the middle. And now we just use it as pure speculation, which is a really bad idea. Mm. You know, people options trading, terrible shorting and longing, oh, ter- terrible strategy. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there. So, I. Even horsepower, right? Yeah, yeah. Seinfeld does his great bit on horsepower. Mm-hmm. He says, "I love that the space shuttle during the space age, they were still measuring in horsepower." And and he wondered whether on that was just in case the engines broke down. Okay, round up five million horses here. We've got to get this shuttle up in the sky.
0: <laughs> um, we'll come back to space shuttles in, in a little bit. But um, you after so a little bit after you had the the chickens, you had clothing. And yes. went on to a few other things, but one of the things that you did is you You've had done a your software business. I like to, yeah, I love that. Uh, is you had a, a software business, right? And we we're talking off air about it a minute ago. How um, that was sold into an ASX listed company, and it went on to do different things. Hmm. Um, but your original engine was this. What was really valuable in that? Uh, can you talk through that? I guess that journey for you, and I think actually maybe the the thing that Would be interesting is how you exited as well and why that was important to you, and we'll we'll go from there. Yeah, so it was
1: called Rentoid.com, and the way I came up with the idea, I was trying to come up with a business idea, Mm -hmm. like forcefully. Oh right, okay. You know, and I always find that so hard. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, I wouldn't do it that way now, but at the time, I was a fair bit younger then, in my twenties, and it was in the early Web 2.0 era Mm. where. Everything that existed in the physical world was getting a digitized version of it. Yeah. Because there was one-way traffic on the internet for the first 20 years. It's changing now. But the one-way traffic was take something physical and make it digital. Yeah. It was basically take atoms and turn them into bits. Yeah. It was atoms to bits. That's one-way traffic. That's what we've done. And I was looking at eBay was really the big website back then. It's like it's a rounding error now. It's got a market cap of like 30 bill or something. Uh, but eBay was like the Web 2.0 site. And I thought, what's what's the opposite of buying and selling? Maybe holding, holding, maybe renting. And there was no one doing like a renting website. I thought, cool. So I just went out and built it. I dusted off the computer. <laughs> I hadn't done code in about 15 years. Mm. And then I uh, did it in PHP back then. It was pretty similar to the code I used to know. So I just learned that and... Um, built the first version of the website where people could rent things to and from each other. And the media really loved it because I had this eco-friendly a- angle. Like you need angles to grow any web business where it's interesting. And so I developed all these angles. First one was it's eco-friendly because there's nothing more eco-friendly than using something that already exists.
2: Reuse. Mm. Reuse, right? Yeah.
1: Re-use, right? So, and that was big and strong back in that time. It was a, In the 2000s, there was this real strong movement towards that. Um, it was like make money out of idle assets, And Mm. I did calculations of the average house has more than 5,000 of vital assets. If you rent them out at 10% of the value, that's 500 a year, and that's a trip to Queensland. You know, like Mm. I did all these narratives around it because people buy stories and narratives. Uh, (laughs) And then I did like quirky items, you know, things that were just weird that you could rent and get access to, vicarious living, rent a Ferrari for a day. So I had all these real – I had $3 million worth of things listed on there. And even to grow the business, I did some really crazy things. Like I went and got the Harvey Norman – catalog mm-hmm. and listed every single item on there that was in the catalog because that's what people wanted and said, rent it for 10% of the price. <laughs> and you know what I did? And people did, and I would go and buy it oh, right. and, then- and rent it to them and give them an experience. And then after they brought it back, I would then sell it on eBay for like, you know, used once 90% of the price and I'd get my money back, but I gave them an experience. And then people were like, oh, wow. And they'd, they'd use it and they talked about it, And it grew. went really well. I was featured on like current affair not running from the camera like a good news story <laughs> and on all the morning shows and everything it went really well tech crunch everywhere and i self-funded it so i didn't have any vc mm. money and um and then i built a team in moldova this was when working cross borders with cheaper staff and i even used that as a selling angle i was on like the abc on the future of outsourcing and digitized workforces where they had a union person saying it's bad for society i'm like well i've employed 20 people in moldova which is part of the old USSR, and now I've got a number of employees here in Australia that wouldn't have existed unless I had that opportunity. So tell me exactly how I'm taking jobs away from Australia. I'm actually inventing jobs.
2: Mm.
1: And so I was on the outside. I'd always ring the media and get like all these media (laughs) angles. But I did find that um, after a while, the business didn't work that well. Because things got really cheap. China really opened up. Buning's got cheap. And a lot of things that we used to rent out, you know, like when I first started, you might remember it's a flat screen TV. It was $20,000. Yeah. So I would, like, rent out flat screen TVs for, like, sporting events. And people would, like, oh, he's got a flat screen and had a whole lot of really cool things. But after a while, like, people would use it a couple of times. And there was a bit too much friction in the transacting. Yeah. That was one of the things I think you need to avoid in a startup. You've got to reduce friction. If you have too many consumer touch points in a purchase process, it just becomes too hard. But I built this really cool engine uh, that had a lot of PR and everything, and I got an offer to sell it, um, which I took. But they actually didn't buy the business. They bought two things. They bought the database Mm.
2: because
1: they had a really big database at that time. It wouldn't be big now. it's maybe maybe 100000 or something. Uh, And they bought the engine, the rental engine that I built. And then they plugged it into a car rental site where it was like people renting cars to and from each other. A little bit like the uh, rental engine, but just in a thinner area. Mm. And so I had an exit and I was was pretty stoked that I sold a company to an ASX listed company. Mm. Um, I think they delisted, but... but, um,
0: Okay, I've got a few questions. One is...
1: By the way, with the questions, make sure you ask me why I should be a billionaire and how I'm too
0: stupid. Okay, go for that one then. Why? (laughs) Tell me, like,
1: why? Why are you not a billionaire? Okay, Okay, go for it. I'll tell you why I'm not a billionaire, and I and I bloody well should be. Let me tell you why. Which is fine. I don't care. I mean, I'm not wondering where my next meal is coming from. But I should be a billionaire because with Rentoid.com, where people were renting things to and from each other, Mm. I still had a corporate mindset, and that stopped me from unlocking a new business, which was from the new world. So people were coming onto my website, Mm. rentoid.com, to rent out their spare bedrooms.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, okay.
1: Right? And I was too worried about the legalities. What if someone's an axe murderer or something crazy like that, which would be very bad. And I would remove them from the website going, oh, this is sort of outside of our terms and conditions. I didn't have VC funding, so I was like a little bit at risk. But this is in like 2006. Here's Airbnb on my website, and I'm too stupid to go, wow, this is an idea. right? Because I wanted to be- <laughs> You're
0: doing the opposite. <laughs> right? I'm de- right,
1: right. Here's an idea. I had people putting themselves up as taxi drivers on my website. <laughs> and I'm like, that sounds a bit dangerous. I better remove it. Two reasons I removed it. First one was my corporate training because I worked in big corporate, Mm. had taught me too much to remove risk
2: Mm.
1: instead of embracing it. And I didn't have VC funding, which would have protected me.
0: Well, okay. So, So, there's two
1: billion dollar, multi-billion dollar startups that I was early on, but I just didn't embrace the risk and I missed out on on those opportunities simply because of my mindset.
0: So, if you were starting a business today, would you have VC funding? And the reason I ask that is... Because in a previous interview you said that if you had VC funding you almost swap masters. Or like, yeah, you and do. I see this with a lot of businesses that I know. Mm. If they have VC funding, it's actually a terrible thing. Yeah, it is. On average, I say,
1: look, ninety percent. It's like everything's a Pareto principle. Yeah. When I say something is terrible and you shouldn't do it, eighty percent of the time I think it's terrible. Okay, and I and I stand by what I said in that interview. I think that if you get a VC, you get a boss. Right, because they have different objectives. And venture capitalists only ever get married with divorce in mind. <laughs> That's their policy. They want a divorce and there's a prenup and it is written in their favor. Mm. Right? And you've got to ask yourself what you really want. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to hold the business. It comes back to what we spoke about before. You want the yield and you want freedom and you want that entrepreneurial nature of control. Mm. Now, Some people, I think there's just become this default in society. Start a business, get funded, Mm. use that, have an exit, right? And I can understand why that is. But 80% of the time, I think that's wrong. The time that VC funding is relevant and great is when you have what I call a production gap, where you need money to physically make it possible for this business to exist. Often, money just gets thrown to scale fast, which isn't the right reason. When Apple got funded in the 70s, they got venture capital to literally buy the plastic and the casing and to put the computers together, right? If you've got a startup that needs funding to make it a reality or to take the gap between the customer orders and actually making the thing, that's when it matters. But all too often, we use it for just scale-ups because it's fancy and it's Silicon Valley and it's a software company and that's just what you do. But... What happens is much of the large S yes goes back to, you know, the wealthy 1% in society.
2: Mm.
1: So I, I, don't th- I don't think it's a good default.
2: Mm.
1: I think that we should try and get a narrative back in societies that is we build businesses and we own businesses and we employ people and we're small businesses because mm. I think that big business hasn't been good for society. I, I really believe that. I've worked for big businesses and I work for big businesses.
0: Yeah. Risk in our society is definitely seen as, just reflecting on something you said before, risk in our society is definitely seen as something to avoid. I feel like if I was, I don't have kids, but if or when I do, I feel like one of the most important pieces of advice is take calculated risk.
1: Yeah, you, you need to take risks. And I teach my kids to take risks. So here's the first thing I tell my kids, and they know this. If they were here and you asked them, I ask them this question, I say, when you grow up, who do you work for? Myself. <laughs> yeah. Right. And people say, oh, wait a minute, you can't tell them that, Steve, what, what if they get a job? I go, yeah, yeah, they actually know the answer to that. And you know what the answer is? Even if I work for an employer, that's my one customer. I've got one big important customer, but I work for Steve Sametino Corporation <laughs> and I hire yeah. my time out to one big important customer. I always work for myself. Right. And when you have that mindset, all of a sudden you're not thinking, oh, I need a pay rise. What can I you think about yourself as a product. So how do you get a pay rise? Become more valuable. How do you do well? Provide more assets to your customer. Be a better product. All of a sudden, you're inflective. You're like, oh, what am I doing to make my future better? You work for yourself. So I tell my kids that you work for yourself and I do drill into them. People who earn more money and have a better standard of living are generally not employees. Even if you look at a CEO, how did they get rich? Not for their wages; it's the, it's the stock options. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, what did you do after rentoid?
1: I sat on the couch and watched MTV. No. <laughs> <laughs> I did do that for a
0: bit. I didn't do much for a year, to be honest. We're just exhausted. Wait, actually, another question. So let me actually. I want to. So this is the first time we've met today, All right? And you have this like. Super positive energy. There's not many people that I've <laughs> come around that have like this big positive energy and help everyone else have a good time and learn and you're passionate about everything you say and do. Where so. does that come from? It's a choice. I mean,
1: I've actually always been like that. Yeah. I was at a function last night um, at Odevee for the Melbourne people. It's a great um, whiskey kind of bar thing, really cool bar. Mm. And so I met some people the first time and they said, how have you got so much energy? I don't know. I've always been that way. Mm. Like, and I I actually feed off other people. So I'm like, when I'm with people, I've got this, like, I I feel it. And I I really want to understand what you're doing. And and when I ask a question, I'm actually listening for the answer and not just my turn to talk. Mm. So there's that. I've always had it, but I have it when I'm with people. And when I'm at home, I actually go into my shell a little bit. I'm like couch and quiet and snooze. I'm sort of like... Uh, an undulating person. And that's why I think that entrepreneurship and freelance work suits me because it's like big moments of energy and then whoo, just yep. load off. Mm. I don't know. I've always been that way. Mm. Um, oh, well, I just I just get excited by people and doing things and having a crack in
0: life. Mm. So we had a VC. Uh, was great on our business podcast, so the other channel. I think he may have featured on this channel as well, and he talked about how his definition of success in a business just doesn't still exist, basically. So to your point before, uh, I've got an I've got an opinion on
1: what a, how you know if you've got a successful business.
0: Okay, yep. So he was basically saying like if you build something and it's still standing, that that's one that's his definition of success. Hmm. But you made a remark in the previous chat that you had with Kate where you talked about like. <laughs> You talked about like what businesses are actually for, and what they actually are, and why they exist. But that wasn't double clicked on. So I'm curious. So maybe we can take that through two angles. Like, what 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 are businesses for? Like, why do they exist? And then, how does that role? Like, how does you how do you define success?
2: Yeah.
1: Let's let's go with success first, and then business.
0: Sure. So, the first thing about
1: success is that it's an internal measure. It's You Mm. can't measure, like you can't tell me whether or not I'm successful unless you know what my objectives were. Because success can only be measured against objectives. And in order to measure it, you need to know what someone or some corporation's objectives were. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. So, success is always an internal measure that you have to set for yourself. Society has this Mary was successful. Billy was successful, but we don't really know if they were, because we don't know what their objectives were. That's the first thing. Mm. But society has these measures where we go, they're successful. He's successful. She's successful. They're successful.
2: Mm.
0: But we don't know. Um, We tend to, in place of that, we tend to do monetary or networks. Yeah, we do. We do
1: monetary. Yeah, and we do and we do proxy. Oh, we've got to remember what money is. Money is a promise. That's all money is. Money is a promise and a risk reducer. I've got more promises in the bank. They were called promissory notes. Hmm. That's literally what the first money money, the first money was grain receipts. Right. In the agricultural era. And I say, Owen, here's this grain receipt. I promise that I will give you some grain in the future.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
1: Or I'll give you some legs from my next calf or whatever. That were just promissory notes. And then in the end, what we did was by fiat, by government, we would change it from two cows equals (laughs) one chalk, and we just made it, look, let's just make these promissory notes so it's easier to trade. Mm. That's what it was. They're just promises. So money is, the more money you've got, the more promises you've got in the bank, I guess. Yeah. And we use it as a proxy for success, but I don't think that that's the only measure, and there's a whole lot of things you can measure success by you know there is a new narrative which is happiness how happy are you the yeah. happiest person wins which i think is true you know happy health whatever but money's become a really big proxy just in the the 20th century and the 21st century for all forms of success mm. and people feel like oh well if you've got enough money you can buy anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which may, maybe you can but i, I don't know yeah. Can, you, can you buy friends? I don't think you can buy friends. Can you buy health? I don't think you can. Yeah. Because if you could buy health, I don't know that this whole health industry <laughs> would exist on, you know, low fat diets and gym memberships and everything.
0: I, I listened to. I I think I read out a joke yesterday. I can't remember the who said it was someone's bike or something, and he said, "I just want the opportunity to test whether money can buy happiness."
1: Yeah, I like that. That's fun. I mean, yeah. it's fun. Look, the studies have shown that a certain amount of economic security does have happiness to a point. But I, I can tell you for sure, I don't, you know, I make 10 times what I did, I don't know, you know, when I was first mm. out in the workforce in my 20s or whatever. Well, I'm not 10 times happier. I'm about the same level of happiness. Mm. Actually, I remember when I started Rentoid, I'd never been so happy at, as at the start of that because, you know, it, it was like there was this – green field and horizon of opportunity when I was starting this startup. Actually, the thing that made me happy was the success that I might have, just knowing that that was a possibility and that was there, got me out of bed in the morning. I was excited by my expectations of the future more than the reality of where you are. And I actually think that's a big key to happiness is where do you think you might be in six months, one year, five years will have a bigger impact on your happiness than where you are right now because we always live that little bit into the future. Mm. And I was really living on a shoestring back then. But I could afford to go and have a coffee and have a beer on a weekend and have a pizza and watch the footy and go surfing and do the things that I like. There's still the things that I do now. I drive a nicer car and have a nicer house, but none of those things have really made me that much happier. Like Mm. it is true that money works to a point, but after that, I don't think it has a huge impact.
0: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of the studies backed it up. But interestingly, if you uh, if you like invert that, it's uh, the stress with money. The stress is actually caused by the potential of not having money, not, not having it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. The risk
1: of losing it. That's yeah. why you become risk averse when you, when you have more of it and you become politically more conservative as you age because you move from a creation to a protection viewpoint. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a creator or I'm a protector. Right, and and those two elements in life are really important, from a business perspective, from friendships, corporate. Is are you a creator or a protector? Right, and and even in investing, oh, these are good defensive blue chip stocks. Oh, this is a growth portfolio. It's time to hunker down and go down to the the, the blue chips that are high cash flow, high yielding stocks. Like we even see that it's protector creator when the market's hot, creator. Big Tech, Elon Musk, Tesla shares, go, let's create. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, So, protect a creator are like two really interesting viewpoints and they have an impact on your happiness as well and where you are. When you're in protection mode, you become defensive and it even changes your posture as a human and the way you look at your finances. When you're in creative mode, you're open-minded to opportunities. You listen to people. You're like, oh, that could be interesting. What about that?
2: Mm.
0: Mm. I like that. So, we were going to talk about the definition of business success.
1: Okay. Well- well, why business exists, we we're going to talk about that. And I think that business exists to divide labor. As a species, mm. we mm. divide labor far better and more than any other species. not even close. It's us and daylight. Right? Other species do divide labor. You can see birds. One stays in the nest and one goes out and forages. Uh, but But we do it incredibly well. And we have a multitude of skills that when they're aggregated in an organized fashion, because we're highly social creatures with developed language where we can organize each other and we've been doing that since the tribal days and then the agricultural days and until now it enables us to gain efficiency and create more with less Mm. we can generate more with less by being organized someone's better at design someone's better at speaking someone's better at finance someone's better at creation someone's better at making someone's better at organizing people all of those factors and there was actually a really famous article. I think it went back to the 1920s. It's called The Theory of the Firm. And it's really important reading. Mm. Might have been by Robert Coase. Let's go to the tapes ESPN, 1987. Um, it's called The Theory of the Firm. And he talks about the division of labor and why firms exist and how it creates a certain efficiency. And I think that's why businesses exist.
0: Is it, I can't see who it's from. Is it uh, Robin? R- R-
1: R- Coase. Ronald Coase. Ronald Coase, not Robert yeah. Coase. Ronald Coase. There yeah, you Ronald go. Coast. I did all right. right. Yeah, yeah it's pretty Ronald Coase. Yeah. Yeah. And so he talked about the theory of the firm, and it was about dividing labor and organizing resources at a societal, civilized, or corporate level, and and that's what we do, and that's what we've been doing time immemorial. It's just now it's more formalized, and certain companies get better at organizing different resources as we layer out our economy and have. Layer upon layer of invention. And the more invention there is, we can now access other people's resources and be part of societies that are geographically displaced to us, but we can tap into it financially, Mm. you know, through share markets and globalization. So I think that the reason that businesses exist is for our species to reduce risk and to do more with less. And on the long arc of history, technology and organization of technology enables us to do more with less. And Buckminster Fuller, who's who's probably the world's first ever futurist, he had a term for it. He called it ephemeralization. Mm. And he actually said something crazy, which I think is true. He said, if we have enough knowledge, we can create everything from nothing. Hmm. I like that. You can see it now with the internet. Like just think about how difficult it was to to get music even 30 years ago or to get a newspaper into someone's hand just to get that piece of information and how easy it is now. It literally flies through the air and just appears in a virtualized nature. Mm. Like that's, that's It's crazy. I don't think we give it enough credit for how extraordinary the internet is as a resource for creating everything from nothing. And the next phase of the internet is gonna be the opposite of the previous phase. The previous phase was one-way traffic, turning atoms into bits. The next phase is we're gonna turn bits into atoms. Mm. We're gonna use information to create a physical world. We're gonna organize things at the molecular level to create physical manifestations of things that weren't there until the information arrived. We're going to brew meat. We're going to create soft robots. We're going to build houses. Everything is going to be information based, but the information will rebuild our physical world. The things we do, play, live in, eat.
0: So obviously, people who don't know you, there'll be links in the show notes <laughs> to all the books, the websites, speech speeches, uh, TED talk, everything. Uh, so. It's like obviously a treasure drive, and if you're a, if you're a uh, like a corporate or something, listen to this. Um, you can get in touch with Steve if you want to um, hear him speak to your team. It's obviously awesome, but you spend your time a lot of your time now thinking about the future of technology. A futurist, yes, is the moniker. Um, but to do that, you spend a lot of time going backwards. Yeah, and the thing that uh, I noticed is you have effectively. You, you operate at the intersection of anthropology technology and economics yeah so can you talk to us about that um you, uh, we just got it obviously a window into it then we just peered through about this idea of reconstructing the physical from the virtual yeah. which is really interesting uh, but can you tell us about like ha- how you do that like what do you actually look at when you're trying because people be, hear the people hear the term futurist and they'll just be like, Okay, you just got- make shit up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but I don't. Yeah, actually, the future is really easy to predict. Like what coming, what is going to come next, mm. is is really easy to see because it's a it's a really classic trajectory. How to deal with it and adapt to it is the hard bit. So my framework, and I developed this. I only realised it after I developed it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Through a lot of reading, I read a lot of history books. I read a lot more about history than I do about technology. So my framework is anthropology. That's based on human behavior. And anthropology doesn't change at all. Humans don't change. Our needs and wants are the same. They've been the same for 200,000 years since modern homo sapiens existed. And so that's the unchanging element. And if you dig deep enough, they're basically social and emotional and physical needs. It's Maslow's hierarchy Mm. kind of stuff. So that's what doesn't change. We think it changes, but it actually doesn't. Like I'll give you an example. The original social media of likes, believe it or not, mm. if you go back about a hundred years, is that girls would share hairpins with guys if they liked a guy, they would give him a hairpin, <laughs> and he would go to his mates and say, "Look, man, I've got fourteen hairpins in the you know over the summer period or whatever." And he, they would carry them around. And then, here's the, here's the flip side. On the other side, the girls would go to their friends and go, I gave out 14 hairpins this summer. <laughs> hairpins were the original likes and social media. That was the Instagram. The behavior hasn't changed. Just the tool has. Mm. Now we collect likes and followers and fans on Instagram or TikTok. It's the same behavior. So you will basically see the same behavior all the time if you look hard enough for it. And if you go enough layers down you will see what the underlying human behavior and important element is in that. So human behavior doesn't change. That's the first thing, I keep that there. Technology is in a constant state of flux and it's important that we understand how to define technology. Here's how I define technology. The tools we use to get things done.
0: Hmm. Makes sense.
1: That's it. Another great definition is technology is something that was invented after I was born (laughs) House,
0: unpack that for me.
1: Okay. So you grow up and something is there. Like a house is technology, but you would never refer to a house as technology, would you? No. It's just a house. Yeah. Clothing is a technology. Mm. Yeah. Does anyone ever say, I mean, sure, people have added microchips and wizardry to clothes recently, IoT, Internet of Things, but you don't think of it as a technology because it's been around. So we have this idea that technology is something that is new or hasn't been invented or it's something we are talking about and now it's here. That's what technology is. And the reason that we do that is anthropological is because once it arrives, it changes things. We discard the old thing and we bring in that new thing. Now, some technologies stay around a really long time. In fact, a study has been done that is if a technology lasts more than 30 years, it usually lasts a few thousand. Hmm. But a technology that can't make it through the 30-year barrier disappears forever. CDs will be that. They'll disappear forever. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. To... VHS, VHS yeah, didn't last 30 disc, years. All yeah. All so A technology that doesn't last 30 years uh, doesn't make it, and there's some generational elements because of that. Because if it can go across two generations, then it's more likely to have staying power and become sticky.
0: So the internet would be an example.
1: Yeah, it's been around long. It'll, it'll last. Yeah. Cars are an example, they'll be around a long time. Trains, if so they last more than 30 years, they stay. Mm. It's really interesting, go and look at some technologies that didn't last 30 years, you go, no. wow! It's a mind-blowing little idea that. Hmm. That's boom, cool. boom, 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 boom. All those techs, they go away. Um, so technology changes how we do things. And then my third parameter is economics. Mm. And economics is really just the art of exchange. How money moves using the technology to solve human needs. So that's my Venn diagram. Human behavior, uh, technology, tools, and then economics, how money moves around those things. And if you get the overlap of those three things, you can see what's going to arrive. Because for anything to do well in business and be new in the future as a futurist, for something to work, it needs to work in all of those three things. I'll give you a couple of examples. Sure. If the social element is missing, even though the tech works and there could be money there, it won't work. I'll give you my example, metaverse.
0: You don't, don't reckon it will work.
1: No, it, it, it the metaverse will be good for three things, training and education. It'll be good for gaming and entertainment. And it'll be good for really probably just only those two mm. training, education, gaming and entertainment. I think that's probably about it. There's bad, really news,
0: bad news for Zuck and- Terrible news. Yeah. See, Even for Apple, what well, they're doing augmented.
1: Well Well, I think they're, they're going to really narrow it down. Like the watch has become for health and fitness. Mm. I've got an Apple watch that sits in my drawer unless I go surfing or running. Mm. I use it for that to sort of track. No one's really- It's less convenient than a phone. You wouldn't use it. Uh, but the metaverse doesn't work because no one wants to put a big clunky thing on their head and like, we could be sitting in the metaverse now. If the metaverse was going to work, right now we'd both have goggles on. But sure. we don't.
0: Yeah. But would it just come in time? I don't think so. I think that
1: eventually we'll have contact lenses or glasses which have heads-up display and augmented reality. I don't think they'll ever have cameras in them, even though you've got the, the Ray-Ban glasses, which I think i have sold seven. <laughs> Sold seven. They won't release how many they've sold. <laughs> I actually asked someone in Sunglass Hut how many of they sold. He said, oh, never. We never sell any. That's what he said um, on the Ray-Ban, you know, the Ray-Ban Facebook spy goggles that, that no one wants. <laughs> um, so anthropology doesn't work. The metaverse doesn't work on that. Uh,
0: cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, this is interesting. Socially, it works. Technologically, it works. Economically, it doesn't
0: that would be flying in the face of so many disciples. Well, I don't care what they think.
1: <laughs> I, I had Bitcoin before all of them. And I love the technology. The blockchain is an amazing piece of technology. Uh, every cryptocurrency other than Bitcoin and Ethereum is going to zero. They are the pink sheets of the modern world. They mm. are all going to absolute zero. <laughs> all right? Well, they're going to be like the pink sheets. There's still pink sheets and speculative stocks, mining you can buy today. It's that Mm. um but it it doesn't work economically because there's no need state for it i mean technologically it's broken as well because it's too hard the ux to use for most most people Mm.
0: Uh, but wouldn't you what about so the economic engine of the blockchain is in an attempt to make it work you have seven miners who benefit from verification and you know, proof yeah. of state, proof of work, whatever. Yeah, but
1: it, it works for some, but it doesn't work in an ecosystem. Money has, I mean, for money to work, if you want it to be money, then it needs to have the six elements that go with the currency. You know, it needs acceptance, divisibility, you know, the, the six elements that go with what. when it doesn't have them. It doesn't even have acceptance. Mm. And it doesn't have stability, which is another core requirement of money. You can't transact in something. It could have wild 20% ups and downs each week. How would you pay your mortgage? Yeah. You wouldn't be able to do it. Mm. I think we'll end up with Gov coins that have blockchain capabilities. I mean, we're working on central bank digital currencies right now. Australia's testing one. Within 10 years, every single uh, democracy in the world will have a Govcoin which has blockchain functionality, but they'll launch them simultaneously. We'll have AUC, USC, which is one for one with all of the capabilities. And one of those capabilities, which is kind of scary, is the government can determine what you spend money on, you can and can't spend it on. So we have open and closed money. Mm. So they'll give benefits to cohorts in society where they say, oh, this is for your school kids' education. So it'll make sure that you can't spend it on gambling, for example, or entertainment or ice cream.
0: Yeah, it comes back to that draconian point earlier on. Um, one of the things that really, it's still like an evolving thought for me is mm. like a lot of libertarians and people like this. Um, who self-disclosed libertarianism <laughs> as well? By the way, um, <laughs> they, I don't think they understand that. Well, that's just my. Here's what they don't understand, right? Because think about that world. If what you're wishing for is actually the opposite of what you. Uh, here's believe. what
1: I know for sure, right? What happened when FTX went down, and all the libertarians put their hand up and want government help? If you're a true libertarian, you should be like free-for-all. None of them believe what they say they believe. They all act like libertarians. And as soon as something goes wrong, um, they put their hand up high and say, we want help from the government. The government's got to bail us out. Mm. They're not libertarians. (laughs) They all drive on the government roads and want to go to the hospital. They're not libertarians. They're liars. (laughs) They've got the L right. And, you know... If you want to know what someone truly believes in when it comes to Bitcoin, people say they're Bitcoin believers, ask them what one Bitcoin's worth. What are they going to tell you? The price. The price. And what's that price going to be? In?
0: Probably Aussie dollars or US dollars.
1: Right. So what do they really believe in? Mm. As soon as a Bitcoiner says, I say, what? I say, do you believe in Bitcoin? They say, so say what's one Bitcoin worth? They say, 26000 US. Okay, You just told me what you truly believe in. <laughs> because one Bitcoin is worth one Bitcoin. It's always been worth one Bitcoin. If you ask someone what's one US dollar worth, I say, Oh, you can probably buy a third of a Big Mac. You know, they're gonna give you a real answer. Yeah. One US dollar is worth one US dollar.
2: Mm.
0: Okay, so this doesn't fit into the economic model. Because mm. it's what so there's so six states of currency. Yeah. Um it it, it doesn't
1: there's a quite a few on those states of currency that doesn't 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 have well it's got divisibility the, the it's got um, durability doesn't have accessibility doesn't have stability mm. yeah so it doesn't fit okay the metaverse doesn't fit into that model there's a lot of businesses it's got to, people have got to want it socially the technology has to work and have a good function you could even argue that um, cryptocurrency and blockchain stuff hasn't really got the tech side of it solved yet because it's too hard to use it's like the internet was in 1963. And that's why you have all these exchanges pop up that try and be like a UX bridge, but then they just become speculative elements.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and just on that idea back on the libertarianism, when Silicon Valley Bank crashed, that was filled with libertarians on Twitter putting their hand up, wanting the government to bail them out. Mm. Real libertarians.
0: <laughs> um so it seems like it would seem like so history doesn't repeat, does it? But it does rhyme, kind yeah, of thing. Definitely. Um, and so you can use this these three lenses, I guess, and overlay. You might just not be specifically right about the timing, but the technology is pretty accurate, like yeah. in terms of its predictive. Ability. Yeah, the,
1: the timing's hard to see. Like with the technology, like the number one thing is: would you substitute it? So, does that solve the social need? Does this new technology usurp the previous one? And it doesn't have to usurp all of its elements. It's just got to be a bit better. Like, does an LP sound better than an MP3? Yeah, it does because MP3s are compressed and they have to fit them in. They have to compress the music and it's not as detailed to the ear. But overall, it's better. When you take into account the price-value equation, it's better. So it works socially, the technology works, and economically it's better. That's why we moved to MP3s. And then after MP3s, it's like, does streaming do that? Yeah, socially I still get to listen to the music and it's great and share it. Um, it's cheaper. It's streaming now. I've got every song in the world for free. What a great price. And economically, does it work? Well, yeah, it does because now I've got streaming services and you subscribe and it works for the consumers. Maybe not so much for the artists. And often that happens when a new technology arrives. The power structure or the revenue structure might shift from this person in the value chain to that other person. And that's where, and that's where disruption lives. So the, the biggest disruptor in the music industry was the artists. They don't make as much money as they used to. You know, if you get a million downloads, you make enough to buy a pizza. If you sold a million singles back in the day, you could buy a house in Australia. Now you get to go to
0: Pizza Hut on Friday night. (laughs) Bad bad news for Monique. (laughs) Works in there the music industry. <laughs> a lot. Well,
1: no, but it's tough, right? And and I think that one of the things that blockchain could solve is it could solve this problem. Like imagine if you had uh, a song becomes a micro business that lives on the blockchain with a set of code where we have artificial intelligence which can look at that code base of that sound file and wherever that appears around the internet Monique makes some money because it's her song. And she might get 1 cent or five cents per play. And that's cool. And that's okay. Because if mm. it goes viral, you know, you get a million cents, you know, which is what's that? Is that ten, is that 10 grand or a hundred grand? 10, Let's grand. Just go with that. Yeah. ten grand, I think. I did the maths.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? So that song becomes an asset that you own. And then you can leverage out the song and say, well, if you want to put it in a TV ad, it's this amount. And you have all this code underneath there which tells you all of the different rights. And in fact, Beyonce could make more money or Drake by saying, You can use my song on your ad, but uh, You you pay per play. So 100 views on YouTube using my song on your ad is fine and you pay me $10, but once it has a certain number of views, unless you pay the money, it caps out. Mm. So all of a sudden, they could make way more money than they do by having licensing agreements through the music industry. Mm. So that's one of the great ways a blockchain could work, but there's so many missing pieces to the technology puzzle yet. That could work socially. um, It could work economically, but the technology isn't there yet. So that's a miss.
0: So I guess the good news, bad news, maybe on this view on blockchain and uh, is mm. it that the blockchain itself is fantastic technology, but it's probably gonna to port to a government entity, right? The government has to be the backbone or the infrastructure of that versus say maybe what it is in the hands of the people at the moment kind of thing where it's, it's a bit more challenging because of the economic incentives.
1: I thought by now it would have done a bit better and that's one of the other things too with tech is looking at sometimes Sometimes the timing, yeah. it, it happens a bit later than you think and then some things happen a bit quicker than you think. I think with AI models, and large language models, this maybe happened a bit sooner than we think mm. and blockchain's taken a bit longer. Mm. Um, but we haven't got a real infrastructure layer yet that supports blockchain. And I think that the speculation has really sullied that there's been so much speculation that we haven't developed use cases that actually have businesses. It's If it's a fabric that business can operate on top of, like a true infrastructure rather than a speculation tool, I think it would have come a lot further towards solving some of these problems like the music industry problem or rights or royalties and different ways that it can be used. Even um, we saw in our local stock exchange they tried to have mm. a blockchain project which failed. Mm. So it will probably be government in the first instance. And here's the thing too. We just need to realise that everything important that exists in this world today was funded by the government. We just need to have an honest discussion about that. I'm a I'm a a raving capitalist who understands the importance of governments investing in infrastructure that we dance on top of. Yeah, yeah. And and I just hate this narrative that government is bad. It goes way back to the Reaganomics era. Government. He said it in his inauguration speech. He said government isn't the answer. Government is the problem. Hmm. Yeah and, and, yeah, and yeah, and anyone who says, "Oh, government are inefficient," I'm like, "Did you enjoy that nice clean glass of Melbourne water you just had? What about those safe roads? Isn't it great that every kid in Australia knows how to read and write and do maths? Yeah, funny that.
2: Mm. Like,
1: don't you love it when you put a plug in the wall that you don't get an electric shock? Do you think that was private industry? No. Yes, government makes mistakes; they're imperfect. So does private business. In fact, private business make way more mistakes than government do. All right? But we are. We're not we're not sitting on the shoulders of giants. We are sitting on the shoulders of taxpayers. <laughs> right? Where did the internet come from, government? Hey, look at this thing here. What have you got? You've got NASA in your pocket. Mm. Cold war and the space race.
0: Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, it's interesting. I I've heard this this debated a lot because and it almost always ends in favor of science being backed by government because yeah you kind of have to explore the frontier and the private businesses can't do that unless someone else has tested the major milestones first like NASA and the space race gives way to SpaceX and all these other of course it does private enterprise
1: absolutely and and there's a few reasons the first one is tenure of management right that's the first one are you going to make a tenure investment Mm -hmm. In private industry or in your investment portfolio, I mean, you hope that your portfolio does well over 10 years, but you don't buy a stock thinking, I'm going to hold this for 10 years necessarily. I mean, I do that with index funds because I'm a big believer in index funds. But the government are the only people who can make the investments on behalf of society because society is short-term focused and households are worried about paying the bills this week. Mm -hmm. So... We need government investment to do anything that's really important and we need government policy to shape private investment so that we can go down a path that is sustainable, Mm. whether it's based on infrastructure or whether it's based on the environment. And the reason that we haven't transitioned to clean energy a lot quicker is simply because it's private industry. I think when we privatised things at the time in Australia when we went through the privatisation era, which happened in most Western markets, and I'm an economist by trade, Mm. Uh, when we privatized most of the industries, they were bloated at that time and inefficient, and they needed, and they were stable. They weren't really going through a great state of flux in terms of technological development. But ever since then, we've had worse outcomes, in telecoms we've had worse outcomes. In electricity and energy, we've had worse outcomes. In roads, we've had worse outcomes. Now you've got to pay to get across the city on CityLink.
2: Mm.
1: You know, now we've got uh, internet speeds, which are embarrassing. In fact, I think once Australia finally gets the internet, we'll be able to achieve great things. Yeah. Where does this view come from? <laughs> that's an ironic statement, given that we're you know 54th <laughs> in the world in terms of internet speeds. Well, well, the thing is, is that you can't make the investments that are needed to push us forward when you have short-term profit requirements from fund managers. Because they will always take the short-year decision, as will the CEOs, because they want to make their share options sing and their balance sheets sing now, not five years from now when they're gone. And when it comes to infrastructure, that requires long lead investment, where the profits will be borne by society five, 10, 15, 20 years later. And those investments are very difficult to make in a private structure. Mm. Or a corporate structure, shall we say.
0: Mm. It um, it comes back to that. Like, Look at telecoms. Here's
1: what we've got in Australia. We've got NBN Mm. competing with Telstra who are competing with Optus. Here's what we should have. And I'm not saying whether or not we need terrestrial or satellite-based or 5G. We need all of them in the same way that we need buses, trams, cars, scooters, we need all of it. If we had one government making that investment in all of those areas that we need, rather than private companies competing, we would be way better off. It's not even close. It's called a natural monopoly. This goes way back to Adam Smith. There are certain industries that there's a natural monopoly of. and The great example is roads, uh, telecoms, railway, you don't want to have two sets of train tracks going around Australia so you can wave to the person in the other train. You want to have one, and then you have private industry compete on top of that, on top of those layers. It's far more efficient. It's inefficient to have competition on infrastructure. It's a really bad decision. Um, and it's d- a great place to employ people and to put training and to mm. put kids and have technical education.
0: Um, yeah, I must admit the reason that I made the investment in my uh – Soon to be EV was because of the government. This <laughs> incentive slap bang right in the front of me, so I did it. Um, but you talked before, this is off air, about uh, non competes. So let's just touch on that because the competitive dynamics and how you think about those are really interesting. So you obviously sold your business, and um, it sounded based on what you were saying before that there yeah. was a certain number of terms given to you. Yeah, there was. Yeah. And you thought, no, this I actually make took sense.
1: less money to get better terms. Yeah. And one of them was you're not allowed to compete in software, which is like saying you're not allowed to breathe oxygen, <laughs> which is crazy. So why? Why, is, why are well, not I the think that about Well, I think that competition things? within the areas that I think we should have private industry is vital because I think that when you have less competition, you have laziness. And when you have laziness, you won't make an investment unless you need to, unless there's a threat. And competitive threats raise society. Rising tide floats all boats. And I think that it's really unfair to have non-competes against people, uh, yeah. and they've just become endemic in society. Someone buys something and then doesn't want to compete. Well, if you buy something, you buy it, and that's it. And I think that by having a rich ecosystem with more species, you get a multiplier effect within industry, and you know specific industries or the economy generally, and and the economy is entirely based on promises and future expectations and investment. And the more competition you have, the richer the ecosystem. You've got to think of it like a forest, right? You don't want to have a desolate wasteland with just salt and like salt bushes. Like it's not abundant. Think about the Amazon rainforest and all the species competing. The more species you have, the more competition, the richer the environment. You don't want to have one invasive species. And we even use that word, an invasive species, and that's what monopolies are. Monopolies are an invasive species which put their tentacles into certain industries and suck up all the goodness. I mean, big tech has done that to media, which is – now, granted, media was a little bit closed back then too, but they've taken away so many journalist jobs which are really important for democracy. And so by having non-competes, you take the oxygen out of something. And I don't think that's good. If a company buys a business, they buy a business. You bought it and good luck. Here's your business. Go for it. And someone should be able to compete with you. And if they're better than you, good. I mean, they can't use the brand name and they can't use the infrastructure or the factory that you bought. That's what you bought. You didn't buy that person's mind. Sorry, the mind isn't for sale. You should be allowed to compete and I think it's better for society. might not be better for that business, but it's better for Mm -hmm. the economy and we need to think at a species level, not protectionist, protecting singular companies. And we've really moved towards that. And it's really bad for society.
0: Mm. So in the interest of time, there is something that I want to get to, um, which is it's a bit like we we probably could talk about this for days, maybe even years, (laughs) uh, um, which is this idea of, you know, AI and the... like you mentioned that that's probably crept ahead of expectations uh, in a big way, uh, but obviously we've had language models like um, those created by OpenAI uh, and others like BARD, which is a, seems a bit more rudimentary to me. Um, I guess can you take us through that, that your just general feeling of this technology as it evolves and where we might go with it? Mm. Like I see it, this I think the adoption of this from a, my background's technology, and from just logging on to like a new resource, like every developer community has some sort of add AI to that. Like It's like, you know, get your large Coke with your fries. Well, you, yeah, like you can AI get it with everything it. now, yeah, right? You can. You know?
1: That's a good way to doing it. Yeah. Just so add how, AI, yeah. just add water. <laughs> how do you think about that? It's interesting that so many businesses are now AI based. Oh, yeah. Which is which is cool. Just pivot. Used to be web three. Now it's AI. Yeah,
0: blockchain two years ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: Blockchain two years ago. Oh, I think it's extraordinary. The first thing I want to say about large language models is that for the first time we've seen a horizontal technology. Most of the artificial intelligence that we've had has been really vertical in nature. So if you look at Google Maps, it's an if this then that protocol. You ask it to give you the fastest direction based on traffic how busy it is s- distance speed limit on the road and it spits out an answer you can't take that and put it in another context the difference with large language moral models sorry the difference with large language models is that they're horizontal in nature and so they can jump from context to context to context and the reason is that language as a species is our most important development it's our killer app and language ties together the fabric of all human knowledge. And what that means is you develop a language model and it can assess what matters in any context because everything that we do, whether it's physics, maths, design, we use language to frame it. And so we've developed the first real AIs, in my opinion, because they're language-based. And large language models have only existed you know, six or seven years, I think, mm. since the first papers were we'll put out on it. And that's why it's a fundamental shift in humanity that might be the biggest ever thing that we've ever, it's right up there with fire.
0: So, okay, So that's, that's a big, profound statement, right? Yeah. So people talk about, can you maybe just talk about the difference between that and say this idea of artificial general intelligence? Mm. and. Can you like walk okay. us through where this goes?
1: Okay, so there's three types of artificial intelligence. There's artificial narrow intelligence, which is an AI which can spit out information in a narrow context. Like a self-driving car is an ANI. Mm-hmm. It assesses where it is. It understands traffic rules. It can brake and accelerate the car and turn and look at the traffic and the pedestrians. And it can navigate. That's mm-hmm. an artificial narrow intelligence. So there's a lot of ANIs around at the moment, maps, self-driving, algorithms. They can stay in one single context. Then you've got an artificial general intelligence, which is what I would put open AI and large language models as. Now, a lot of people say that it isn't. Mm. There's, There's debate on that. I think it's a general intelligence, and there's a real easy test for that. And I'll debate this with anyone. I don't care who you are. I don't care whether you're Sam Altman. It's a general intelligence because it has general knowledge. (laughs) <laughs> All right. It's real easy. It's like, okay, what is general knowledge? I ask a person, well, the general knowledge is I can talk about music and I can talk about code and I can talk about carpentry. It's general knowledge. Well, it can do that. So it's got general knowledge. All right. We need to talk about what knowledge is and what intelligence is. We'll do that at the end. And then there's artificial superintelligence. And artificial superintelligence far exceeds human intelligence in every single realm. Smarter than any human that ever existed in every realm. Maths, creativity, just anything you can think of. Any type of intelligence. And an ASI would theoretically develop its own agenda and objectives. And that poses a risk that we call the alignment risk. Will the AI be aligned to our personal needs? And wants? will it be a benevolent AI or a sadistic one? Hmm. (laughs) Will it be an AI that actually cares about us? Or cares about the earth? Like, what will it care about? We don't know the answer to that question. It might say, actually, the earth is in real trouble. Okay, I better have a look at why the earth's in trouble. Fossil fuels, environment. Okay, yeah, they're they're the the troubles. Actually, who's the cause of those troubles? I know the pesky humans that invented me. Hmm. And it could wipe us out if it so chooses. Because if it's a super intelligence, it can do everything better than us. So they're the three different types of intelligence. And intelligence increases exponentially. So it doesn't just get a little bit better. It actually, because of computing power, it sort of follows a Moore's Law style pattern where it exponentially gets better. And there's an idea called the singularity where the increments of improvement get shorter and shorter and shorter until we reach a time where it Infinitely improves itself to the point where it can organize all of the molecules in the known universe.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. That's
1: like Star tricky stuff. But Ray Kurzweil thinks that'll happen by 2045. So it's like, not that far
0: away. So, like, if you look at, say, like the leap from like GPT three to GPT four, uh, that was substantial. If it sits tests and maths, English, yeah. whatever, there are some areas where it does fail. Like fund managers sure. yep. seem like they're stuffed. Um, sorry, guys. Um, but it. When you think about that, it is those incremental changes. You you were tracking changes. You personally were tracking changes and developments of new apps, new this, new that, and then you gave up. I quit. Of, I quit. Yeah. For the first. And if I go on Twitter, I'm bound to see a hundred of these. So twenty AI tools you need to know today. So you know? I had a list. Um, cool
1: AI tools. It's still it's still on my website. Uh. Website sounds so annoying. It's on my website, HTTP forward slash colon colon www dot. And I had like a whole lot of tools that were like the main things that you might want, like editing and video and all the sort of things that you would want. And then it was just, there was just so many. And then I looked up how many AI tools there were. And I actually looked it up before I came today. There were 8,000 new AI tools in the last 30 days.
0: Yeah, right, okay.
1: There's a great website called There's an AI for That. So you might remember there was one that was, there's an app for that. Yeah. Now that there's an AI for that, dot com <laughs> exists where you can just basically type in what you're after and bam, there's the AI for it. Because a lot of this software is now being released yeah. into the market and they've got APIs, uh, ChatGPT and OpenAI have APIs that you can use. So there's AIs for pretty much everything and you just can't keep up now. Or It's like why would you track how many apps there are? You just search for the app you need. there's a really great one a friend's going to tell you about it because Mm. that's kind of where it's got to there's
0: an interesting one Uh, i I follow the open source community very closely and the amount of code that's written for open source purposes has exploded because of this yeah because everyone in a you know github or wherever stack Mm. you're looking um you can just ask the bot to do it yeah and then you release that and then it builds on that and it builds on that and it (laughs) Well, that's the recursion and this is the thing
1: that actually leads to an artificial super intelligence is because the recursion now can write its own software which teaches it new things, which writes more software, which continues. It's almost like you release something into the world and it, and it becomes its own life form where it almost self-replicates mm. and this is the thing that an intelligence or a species does. The difference between an intelligence and a species is a species actually self-replicates and we're getting to a stage of self-replication with technology where a lot of these AIs can actually, you can set it an objective, not just ask it a question. So baby GPT and auto GPT now, what you can do is you can set it a question or set an objective more than a question. And it will set its own tasks and then iterate its tasks based on what it's found and then write its own code, which then informs the next piece of code that it writes. So it's starting to self-replicate in a way already.
2: Mm.
0: So then this uh, ASI, mm. like how far away would we be from that? So Kurzweil says what, 40, 2045? He says the
1: singularity, singularity is in 2045, which is basically like a black hole of technology where we don't know what would be on the opposite side of that. If a technology becomes so intelligent, it self-replicates and just hits an exponential, we, we don't even know what that would be. I think his view of an artificial intelligence that is b- beyond human existence is 2029, so six years away. It might even be close. Than that. His, his predictions are really accurate if you look at the predictions that he's made. Now, whether or not an intelligence is smarter than humans actually has its own objectives or self-awareness, we're not sure. But the one thing that a lot of people have said, and Rodney Brooks, who's a great AI researcher, said chat GPT doesn't know anything, so it doesn't matter. And even Kevin Kelly, who I respect a lot, who's the founder of Wired Magazine, says that there's no evidence that uh, emotions or... Uh, self knowledge will occur. For me, I don't think it matters. And I think we need to redefine intelligence because we have this narrative in our mind that intelligence is based on self awareness. And I don't think you need that for it to become incredibly dangerous. How so? Because intelligence is really just about taking inputs and then developing outputs. That's really all, all yeah. it is. It's taking a set of information, mashing it up, and creating an output. Yeah. Really. Uh, And you don't need to be self-aware to do that at a level that's beyond human comprehension. Like, there's a lot of things that we don't understand that we can do. And even if an AI doesn't understand what it's doing or even really understand the thing you've asked it to do, I don't think it matters because if it starts doing stuff, just because and then does more stuff based on what it learned and it just does that stuff. If it's if it's misaligned to what we want, then we're in trouble even if it doesn't understand it because it doesn't matter. If it just does something because it can and then it iterates and it keeps doing it, it doesn't need to understand it. Like I don't understand how I know to run and catch a ball and get my hands in the right spot. I know my brain's doing calculations on where I should run and the trajectories of the ball and everything, but I don't understand it, but I can still do it. Mm. If an AI doesn't understand something, it doesn't matter. What matters is what it does in its output. And if its output becomes more and more intelligent in inverted commas than what we would do, and it starts going off on its own path, then we have an alignment problem, even if it's way more intelligent than us and it doesn't even understand how or why it's doing it. It doesn't matter. It's like a runaway virus almost.
0: So it could be doing that already, right?
1: It could be. A lot of the researchers say that if an AI did develop self-awareness or super intelligence, the first thing that it would do is not tell us what its objectives are. Let me give you an allegory. Have you ever been driving down the highway and you've seen a truck filled with cattle? Yeah. Did we tell the cattle where we were taking them? <laughs> no, no.
0: Well, they probably did that, they probably just don't know. Right, wow, <laughs> yeah. right? They don't know, do they? They get a
1: horrible surprise at the abattoir. Mm. And even if you have an AI that isn't anti-human, like we're not anti-ant. Like if we want to build a highway and there's an ant farm, we, we, we might even try and like go around it if we could. But if it's in the way, it's just in the way. It just is. It's not. I mean, and this is the thing, and and I feel like we've given birth to a new species. I feel like that, and I feel like our only chance for survival is if we merge with the machines. So, what does that look like? So, merging with the machines-
0: Like a Neuralink type thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that we'll eventually learn to embed the technology inside our bodies. If you look at the trajectory of technology- The world was so complex we had to build things to store more knowledge than we can store inside our body. So we drew on cave walls and then we had books and then we had computers as big as this room and then we had a desktop and then we had a laptop and then we had a phone and now we've got earpieces. And eventually this will enter our body and I think we'll have computation at a molecular level where the technology is in our body and I think eventually the technology will teach us how to give birth to a progeny with the technology already inside them. And I think we'll have a split in our species where we have Luddite humans and Neo-humans. Luddite humans will say, I'm not gonna be technologically enhanced, I'm gonna stay that way. And then Neo-humans will be those that choose to embrace the technology, which will be the modern day equivalent of some chimpanzees learning to climb down from the tree, hop on two legs and cross the savannah.
2: Mm.
1: And I think that if we merge with the technology, it gives us a fighting chance because the technology will be us, it won't be them and us. Mm. And we can add a layer of humanity. Of course, AI being runaway might be, and might have clues on how we solve some of the crisis that we face that we can't work out. Maybe we need the AI to help us solve the problems we can't seem to solve. We've subconsciously developed something to solve the problems that we can't solve, like how to have abundant energy that doesn't ruin the environment, mm. or how to stop the nuclear threat through artificial diplomacy. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
0: Um, that whole area of electromography and like wearable technology is really interesting to me, um, and I think a lot of those, I think a lot of the big rocks can be solved through. This is just my rudimentary understanding. Will be mm. solved through just pattern recognition and machine learning, and then yeah. just build the AI off the top of that. But then there are some which are very complex, and I think that's like the whole brain. You know, technology interfaces, yeah, yeah, is
1: yeah. It, BMIs, brain machine yeah. Interface, or yeah. BCIs, brain computer interfaces.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting area of technology. I think when Neuralink and others set about on their journey, they didn't have the tools that we have now to solve that specific problem, with, which could unlock profound leaps forward. So that's something that I'm watching very closely, just as a like if if they could, then incredible. But there's still a lot of shortcomings. But there are many companies around the world trying to solve similar problems, even if it's through, like is it uh, surface ECG, uh, where you can, you know, read nerves and that sort of stuff from the outside. Yeah, which is fascinating. Technology. Yeah,
1: MRIs and you, you can see brain patterns in ways that we wouldn't be able to mm. have known in mm. the past. It's mm. it's pretty extraordinary what can mm. be done. Already,
0: I've got uh, two final questions Great. for you. These are my philosophical ones. Ooh. So, um, we haven't done any justice, by the way, to Steve's catalogue of things that he thinks about, does, writes, speaks on. So, please check out the website. There will be links there, social media, everything like that. Uh, but the two final questions are if you could go back and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? Quit quicker.
1: Quit quicker. Yeah. I chased a lot of bad ideas for a long time because I was in love with them instead of love with the truth. Mm. And I think being in love with the truth is more powerful than being in love with an idea. When it comes to business or yeah. investment. Yeah. I stayed too long. Stay a season. Like don't leave the field when it gets hot in the summer. Tend to your garden. All right. Or if there's a storm, don't don't leave. Stay, stay a season or two. And if the first season there's a storm, maybe you've got to stay too because there's not going to be a storm every year on average. (laughs) There's not going to be a hailstorm that ruins your crop. But I think the seeds of success in any business or startup, they're pretty quick. I really do. I I think they're there pretty quick. Three months kind of tells you. Mm. If you don't get traction in three months, Mark is telling you something. So I would, I would tell myself to quit quicker. I think I stayed too long in corporate, in jobs I didn't like, for bosses I didn't like, doing work that I was not that fond of. Yeah. I, you always learn some things through hardship that you bring with you. Yeah. But I wish I quit quicker and, and went into the areas that I liked more.
0: Mm, love it. Final one. She's, uh, there's been a lot of these, but um, what's one thing that you believe that few people would agree with you on?
1: This is the one thing I believe that very few people the one thing that I believe that very few people do is that luck is the biggest part of your success. Luck is way more important than skill. Mm. When it comes to financial well-being, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to corporate success, when it comes to family, you need to be lucky. How lucky are we that we're in a democratic country with clean water and education? Mm. I'm self-made. No, you're not. You're not self-made. You're here. Straight away, you're in the top 10% lucky people in the world. You're already in the, in the top 10%. You're luckier than 90% of the people in the world if you're in a Western democratic market. like What would your chances be of having a great portfolio or a business success if you're in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa? Like, zero. mmm like luck is way more important. I hate the Silicon Valley narrative of "oh, this person's a genius." Like, by the way, I think that all billionaires in the world, every single one of them, is pure luck. <laughs> pure luck. You show me any billionaire, and I will show you absolute luck. I don't care what anyone says. I'll have the debate, and and I can even prove it mathematically.
0: Yeah, what well, could you do it here right now? Or- I
1: can. I can prove it mathematically. I can. I'm not gonna do it, but I can prove it yeah, mathematically, yeah. just with, with 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 a simple statement. Right. How many people do you think you would need to if you if someone had to flip a coin and guess the right one 30 times in a row?
0: Wow, that's uh,
1: uh this this leads to the BNR like. Yeah, theory. I would
0: I don't know because I've heard a similar one where it's like you fold a piece of paper X number of times against yeah, the moon and yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: it's just a mind-boggling number. It's a mind-boggling number. So, it's more than a million. Okay. Right? Now, the billionaires in the world, right, have all flipped that coin 30 times in a row and got lucky.
0: Mm. Just through the sheer, you're saying through the just sheer number? Just the
1: sheer number of people in the world. The reason there's billionaires is there's so many people in the world, someone's going to be a billionaire. And it's not skill. It's luck. They were the people who made 30 decisions in a row and every single one of them worked. I don't care what anyone says. Now, can you become a successful business person and earn a few million dollars or several million dollars or maybe hundreds of million dollars through skill? Sure. Sure you can. Absolutely. Yes, that's skill. But billions is luck. Everything has to fall your way. Government policy has to fall your way. You have to be in a rich country. You have to have parents who taught you things. You have wealth around you, which gives you the opportunity to start businesses. Like you just need luck. Mm. And 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 I'll get shot down for this. I already know I'm going to get shot down. That's fine. Shoot me. I don't care. Like I do not believe for one second that there is a billionaire in the world that wasn't lucky. Like even Warren Buffett. You know what his dad did, right?
2: Mm.
1: He knew about shares before. anyone. I didn't even know what shares were until I went to university. I didn't even know what they were. Mm. He had an advantage. They all had an advantage. Bill Gates. He had access to computers before anyone had access to computers. Jeff Bezos. His parents threw him a couple of hundred grand to get started. <laughs> hey, it, the b and narrative is the biggest lie ever told. Oh, what about Uncle Elon while we're on the topic? You know what his parents did?
0: No, I didn't know. I don't actually know.
1: And they had a sapphire mine. They had lots of nice, nice slaves in there, earning them money. He has this whole narrative that, you know, he had no money and was sleeping
0: on the counter. Bullshit. <laughs> I love it. So, in this conversation, <laughs> we've managed to talk about just about everything. And, um, I, I, yeah, I love it. <laughs> Bring the opinions, as they say. And I, well, lo- I love it. And, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. We're... Clint, like We're adults I, I, here. We're,
1: let's be adults yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying that they're not clever. I'm not saying they haven't done a great job, but, you know, that luck is way more important I than agree what with people you. think, yeah. in my opinion. Still, I'm lucky as hell. Yeah, we all are. I was you know, I was born with one, like, little micro gift, and I make a living out of it. I, I can speak confidently. That's it. It's the only thing I'm good at. I'm terrible at everything else.
0: Well, you think about your um, coffee quite a bit. I'd say that's a superpower, at least in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to chat with you. And thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing. I love it. I have had
1: such a good time hanging. Can't wait for the next one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be around too, for sure. So Steve, Sammartino, really appreciate you taking some time to join me on the show. Thanks for having me.